0: Right. We are coming to the end of Galatians. It's been a really enjoyable time, and Paul concludes his letter in very practical ways. He's clearly being asked some questions um, in dialogue with these churches. And these are questions that are very familiar to Paul, because they are kind of a human way of responding to the freedom that is offered in the gospel. And the question goes something like this. If we are saved by grace, if coming to know Jesus truly does forgive us of our sins, if the religion that is known as Christianity is not about doing, but is about done, then doesn't that mean that we can just kind of live however we want? Doesn't that mean that we can just sin so that more grace would abound. And you can tell that Paul has faced this question a lot because he answers it several times in different letters in different contexts. And his answer is very consistent. It's by no means. And he also says that the condemnation of outsiders against Christians who live in that way, who say, you know, there's something inconsistent about your life, and the God that you claim to follow, that that is a just condemnation. And so in Galatians, at the end, after kind of making a full-throated defense of the reality that we are justified by faith and faith alone, that we cannot stand before God and point to anything that we have done as a reason for being saved— After making that defense, he then turns to the Christian life. How do you then live? And how he frames that is in the very first verse of chapter 5, "...for freedom Christ has set us free. You are set free from guilt and sin and slavery to be free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." Elsewhere, he says, do not use that freedom to indulge your flesh, but instead serve one another. And so now, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6, Paul starts to work out what it actually looks like in a community when a community of sinners comes together because they have been called out of darkness, out of sin, into life, into light. And how that works. And here are some of the things that just kind of like thinking about this text jumped to the forefront of my mind. Here's what it feels like. Here's what it's like to belong to a community like that. Conflict. Difficulty. Jealousy. Strife. Anger. Envy. But also reconciliation. Restoration, sacrifice, selflessness, humility, gentleness. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus, when you are called into that community of faith, which is these local churches, the conflict does not stop. You're not all of a sudden made perfect. Yes, you are justified, you are declared righteous by God and yet you remain a justified sinner. You still sin. I still sin. We still sin. And so that means that that type of community that's holding on to those two things is incredibly messy. And so he writes this letter very practically to try and help at the end especially, to encourage us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and then how we are to do it. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll go through those three instructions that Paul gives us here. Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Please pray with me. Father, this is your word. You desire that the reality of our salvation would not just remain as an abstraction in our minds, but that it would actually flow out of our hearts everything that we desire, want, believe. And Lord, what that means is that it impacts what we do, that we begin to love as you have loved. But we do not love to earn, but we love because we long to see your grace multiplied. And we long to see that in the people around us, in our neighbors, and in our brothers and sisters of the faith. So, Lord, we ask for your help as we consider these things this morning that we would be faithful, that we would walk in light of the gospel that we have received, and that you would help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what to do? What are you supposed to do? If you are walking according to the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, if you have fruit of the Spirit in your life, what should you do? Well, you should look out for one another. You should want to help your neighbor, your brother and sister in the faith. You should want to see them thrive. You should want to see them strong. You should want to see them walking in the Spirit as well. And this is where Paul starts in this section, is the very first thing he says in verses 1 and 2 is that, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I know the human heart because I have one. And so when you read that, you are looking for the out. You're like, oh yeah, the elite Christians, the super spiritual Christians, they are the ones who should do that. That's not what this means. He's not talking about different levels of spirituality within the body. What he's saying is it goes back to the very first word of that sentence, which is, we translate as brothers, but it's collective, so we could say brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, you who are walking by the Spirit, who have received the Spirit, you, all of us, If you see anyone caught in any transgression, restore them in the spirit of gentleness. And so this is a universal duty of Christians, is to be trying to help, trying to restore other Christians who have kind of gotten off track or who have strayed from the path So it's for all of us to do. This is not just for the more mature or the farther along, because then no one would ever do it, because there's always going to be someone who's more mature, and we'd just all be waiting for that person to do it. It's for us who have the Spirit to do this. And specifically what the scenario that he's talking about is he's talking about somebody who is caught in any transgression so this is transgression is a way of translating the word also we translate as sin it is a departure from the law of god it is an offense to the lord and it's described as being caught in it so that's an important distinction Because what this isn't referring to, at least here, is like someone who is just determined to continue to rebel, to continue to just say, yeah, I don't really care what God says that much. He's not necessarily talking about that person. Instead, he's talking about somebody who desires to walk with God, who desires to repent of sin who desires to follow. And yet, even when you have that desire, even when you have the Spirit indwelling you, we can be caught in transgression. There's a couple different ways to be caught in transgression. The first is that you get ambushed. And this doesn't make you a helpless victim. You still are responsible. But what it means is that we are just vulnerable. That we have an enemy who is stalking us. And there will be times in your life when you get caught with your guard down, where you get caught unawares, you get caught in a moment of weakness, and then you're ensnared in a web of sin. And it's destructive, and it's isolating, and it causes all kinds of questions to bubble up like, am I really a child of God? Am I really saved? Look at my life. I can't belong to God. Is it really worth it? Untangling this mess that I'm caught in seems way too hard. Wouldn't it just be easier if I just moved somewhere and started over and didn't actually deal with any of this? And so this is an encouragement to us as Christians to see that in someone. And to interrupt those thoughts that distort the truth of God's grace. And to do what? To restore them in the spirit of gentleness. The second way that we can get caught in transgression is that we're just blind. We're doing something. And it's like, it may have started really small and almost imperceptible. Maybe you just had internal anger that eventually led to yelling occasionally, that eventually led to consistent outbursts. And pretty soon, you find yourself having fits of anger continually. You've just gotten used to it. You don't even realize that you're angry all the time. Just plug and play any kind of sin. It can start small and then just increase incrementally over time. One of the the hardest ones, I think, I know for me and for a lot of people that I talk to, is greed. Like we have a love for money that might start tiny. And then we are just chasing the next raise, chasing the next increase, chasing the next level of wealth building, chasing the next material possession that we can obtain. And we're just totally blind to the fact that we're being controlled by our greed. And so we need each other to enter in, and to restore. And that word restore is a word that is used in two primary contexts, and this is going to be a choose-your-own-adventure, because the two contexts are mending a fishing net or resetting a bone. So which one would you guys like to talk about? (laughs) Good, because I don't want to talk about resetting a bone either. It sounds painful. So this word restore, it's the idea of something that was meant for one use and has been broken to such an extent that you can't use it anymore. You see how it works both ways a fishing net or a leg. And I was also thinking, I, now I haven't repaired many fishing nets. I don't know if you guys have, but it's probably, to me, it sounded like one of those things where. Like, I would do it thinking that I could do it pretty easily, (laughs) and then I would kind of get into it and realize, oh, this is incredibly complicated, and I have no idea how to repair this fishing net. And same thing with, like, resetting a bone. It's like, I'm not a doctor. If I tried, I wouldn't, I would give up before even really doing the job, because I was afraid. And so what he's talking about here is not like a very simplistic or kind of like easy solution. He's talking about something that requires work, that requires diligence. It requires time and care and skill. And so God is putting this job into your lap. And saying, this is your work to do. To restore your brother who is caught in any transgression. In verse 2, we get a kind of another gloss of what this looks like. What it looks like to live in community. What we should do. And it's to bear one another's burdens. So fulfilling the, love, the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens. So living in community with other people, the closer in proximity and intimacy that you get, the more you're going to be bothered by their burdens. The more you're going to be inconvenienced, the more you're going to be frustrated, the more you're going to be afflicted by the shortcomings, by the quirks, by the sins of other people. And so... What Paul doesn't say is, well, you need to make sure that you have good boundaries so that you don't have to endure those burdens. I think that's kind of something that we take pride in in our culture. It's like making sure that we have those boundaries so that another person doesn't actually have an impact on me. I'm not saying not to do that. But what I'm saying is is that has been used, I think, by me, by a lot of people I know, as an excuse to just kind of build up a wall. And so instead of a boundary with a gate that can open and close, we just have a complete wall up so that you're like, I'm just going to protect myself. I'm not going to enter into somebody's pain. And so when you see someone who's struggling with something, you don't go and talk to them. Instead, you might talk to your friend about them. We're not in what not to do yet, so I'm going to save myself for that. But bearing one another's burdens is, a, is something that we are called to do. And it's something that we are called to do because we all have burdens. And we don't think about this. We, I think, often are victims of the idea that we are omniscient. And so when somebody else irritates us, when somebody else might be impatient with us, or when somebody else is not doing something that maybe they should be doing all the time, we get into this idea that we know everything that's going on. And so we make a judgment, kind of like a quick judgment about that. And we write them off or we criticize and so this command is is actually it's a check against that because it's like you don't know what's going on with that person you don't know what burdens they are carrying you don't know what is tormenting them internally you don't know what is weighing them down And so this call is a reality that there is going to be conflict in a community. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be irritation. But bear with each other because we all have burdens. Understand that. Have compassion towards one another. So that's those are some ways that Paul wants us to look out for one another. He wants us to enter into people who have been ensnared by sin, and he also wants us to be understanding and patient and willing to put up with each other and our shortcomings and our burdens. So what does Paul w- want us not to do? And this is part of the confusing part of this passage is that it seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He says, bear one another's burdens, and then not too long after that, in verse 5, he says, for each will have to bear his own load. So what's he talking about? And he's talking specifically about a temptation that happens when you're living in community with people and when you're bearing people's burdens. And that temptation is that we start comparing ourselves. We start comparing ourselves to other people around us. And you can do this both ways. You can make yourself feel really good by comparing yourself to someone who is caught in a sin. And it can kind of give you this like superior air of self-righteousness. It's like, oh yes, I'm very spiritual, so I'm going to help this poor person who isn't out of their trouble. And you go, you grow proud. So there's a... Incredible temptation that comes along with someone else's sin. That's why he does give that warning in verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And he picks up that same theme in verse 3, where he says, if you think you are something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. And so the best way to think that you are something when you are actually nothing is by comparing yourself horizontally, especially to people when they're in their lowest points in their lowest moments. And you can become incredibly bitter. You can become incredibly proud if you're doing that consistently. Some of the specific things that we're tempted to when we see someone caught in sin, when we are comparing ourselves, is gossip. This is a way that we sin against each other is instead of following the biblical command of when you see someone in sin to go and restore them, you go and talk about them with someone else. That's gossip. Go talk to them. That's the first conversation. Go to them. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. Talk with them. That's scary. It's really not that scary. Go seeking to understand. Go and ask them questions. Go and invite them to share more. And you might start to understand their burden a little bit better and to relieve them of it. We already talked about pride. And then envy is another one. When you're comparing yourself to other people and you see other people whose lives just seem to work, who seem like they are walking with the Lord in maturity and joy, and consistency. And all of a sudden, you start to kind of despair. And you grow envious of what they have. You grow impatient with the Lord that He hasn't worked with you in that way. You grow neglectful of the gifts that you have been given. And instead of trying to cultivate that slowly over time, You're going to be tempted to give up. You're going to be tempted to kind of self promote, to appear to be more than you are. And this is why Paul takes us in verse 5 and reminds us that every single one of us, we will stand alone before God. You will have to bear your own load. And that's really the biggest danger of when you're starting to compare yourself to other people, when you're starting to kind of try to assess where you're at spiritually by looking at somebody else, is that you're losing sight of Christ. You're not looking to him. He is the standard. He is the only one that you'll be judged by. It's his law. That you're commanded to fulfill. And that leads us to how to do this. How do we do this? How do we live faithfully in a life with other Christians? And this isn't really Paul's point here, but he offers us just a couple of little nuggets that I want us to consider. And The overall instruction that I think that he is taking us to is that we do this by seeking Christ in his word and by his spirit. Seeking Christ in his word and by his spirit. There's kind of this awkward transition in verse 6 where Paul says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then he goes into this idea of you reap what you sow. So if you sow to this, you'll reap that. If you sow to this, you'll reap this. And what I think he's doing here is he's centering us on what we find in Scripture. And the encouragement here is, yes, to take care of those who are teaching you the Word. Why would you do that? Well, because it's in your best interest to do that. It's in your best interest, people of God, to care for a teacher in such a way That he can devote himself to the word so that he can teach you well. And implicit in that is instruction to the teachers to live a life in such a way that you're not needing that much, that you're actually receptive to the gifts that the community is giving you. And so, I'm not necessarily talking about here at this point. I'm talking about wherever you go as a member of a church, this is a good thing for you to desire, to share everything that you have with those who labor in the word, because it will set them free to do that more, to do that better. And it's a gift. It's a gift to the church when you have people who are devoting themselves to the word, Because they will bring out all of the riches that are there. And in a way, the alternative is to invest in other things. If you use what you have, and he's talking in material terms, but he's also talking in material terms that kind of point to a richer fellowship. The word is koinon which is the root word of koinonia which is the word that we translate often as fellowship and so it's the sharing of all of life so you can share your life with someone who is laboring in the word for you or you can share your life with someone else you can share your life with a social media influencer you can give your attention to other things you can be entertained You can pursue your career to the neglect of everything else. And Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And then he says, this is the point. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, You will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. So that's something that needs to sink into us, that you do reap what you sow. It really does matter what you pay attention to. It really does matter what you fill yourself with. No, it's not to earn righteousness before God. Instead, it's to follow after the righteousness that he has given you that he has bestowed on you. And that is what makes sense to people who have been brought to the throne of God's judgment and have received grace. They're going to want that grace. They're going to have hearts that are attuned to it. They're going to see the fruit of the Spirit starting to grow in their lives, and they're going to want to cultivate that. So want that. Invest in it. Spend your time and resources on it. Why? Because from the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Eternal life is talking about two things at the same time. It's talking about, yes, an everlasting life, a life that will never end, no more death. And it's also talking about the quality of that life. Now, we are waiting to enter into eternal life where we will no longer die, where our our flesh will no longer be in corruption. But right now, you can start to experience the quality of eternal life. You can start to experience the fullness of the life of faith that God has for you. And it's a joy-filled life. If you have ever restored someone who's been caught in sin, there is nothing better. There's nothing better. You get to see someone who was crippled, disfigured, who was completely unable to correct themselves. And you get to see God's grace enter their lives and heal them and restore them, and weave them back into the net to bring God glory. You get to see how that restoration ripples out through every corner of their life and spreads and tells the story of God's goodness, His generosity, His grace. You get to experience that. You get to experience the abundance that corresponds with a new life. And that's why this is something that is not like a new law. This is not something that, okay, so now Jesus did something, but you have to do this. No, instead, what Paul is doing here is he's showing us the fullness of life that we get to enjoy. And so, yes, do we obey this? Yes, because we want it. Because we see its goodness. So we obey in a different way. We don't obey to justify ourselves anymore. We bear one another's burdens. We restore someone who is stuck in sin because we long for it. It's what our hearts are yearning for and aching for. And I'm afraid sometimes we get distracted. But sometimes it's also just really hard. Sometimes it doesn't happen as quickly as we want it to. Sometimes we get tired of bearing each other's burdens. Sometimes we go to restore somebody and it kind of blows up in our face because we're not God. Because we're not Jesus. Because we're not omniscient. Because we're not all powerful. We remain dependent. On him, And so at the end of this passage, Paul encourage us, encourages us in perseverance because he knows that this is difficult. Next week, we're going to be looking at a text where Paul has a moment where he reminds his audience of what he has suffered, what he has endured, how he has borne the burdens of others. In verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's almost certainly talking about his scars from when he was stoned, from when he was whipped, when he was tortured, for preaching the gospel, for restoring sinners, for bearing burdens. And he's tired. But he wants us to persevere in our tiredness. If we do not give up, you will reap from the Spirit eternal life in due season. And ultimately, how you do this, all of Scripture, so going back to seeking Christ in His Word, As you come to the end of yourself, as you come to your points of weakness, of your points of breaking, your points of inadequacy, seek Christ in his word. The word and the spirit go together. So as you go into the word to mine the depths and the riches for Christ, the spirit will empower you. The spirit will give you life, will give you endurance that does not come from you. It doesn't come from your own strength. Because that's one of the keys, going back to verse 2 for a minute, that's one of the keys of the command is to bear one another's burdens. Here's what he doesn't say, be crushed by one another's burdens. So that now instead of one person who's crushed, there's two. No, bear, carry them, help. But you don't do that in your own strength. You do that as you're filled with the Spirit, as the Word empowers you to see Christ, to be reminded of all that He has done. What you're going to find when you go to the Word is you're going to find that you are reminded time and time again of how Jesus has restored you when you were caught in sin. How He bore your burden. Because you're going to be reminded that it was not his cross that he carried. It was not his sin that the wrath of God was being poured out on. But he took it from you. He took your burden and he carried it on his cross. And he took your sin and he destroyed it in his death. And you're going to be reminded that in him as He sends out His Spirit, you have been given eternal life, a new life, and that He is faithful to give you everything that you lack. So don't fear this work. Don't fear this messy, conflicting work of living in a community with other sinful Christians. But depend on Christ In all that you do, as you're entering into those conversations, as you are bearing and carrying other people's burdens. And persevere. Persevere, because even though you are going to grow tired and weak, and even though you'll look at this earth and you'll see the grass withering and you'll see the flowers fading. You can know that the Word of God endures forever because it speaks of Christ and because its Spirit gives it life. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for these promises that this work that we, as we think about, seems impossible to do on our own. We thank you that we have received a Helper. And that that doesn't make us passive, but it actually shows us how to act, how to love, how to serve. And so God, I ask that you would be with us, that you would be with this church, that even this morning, as we consider ways that we have become distant or cold to the suffering of other people, how we have maybe gossiped instead of restoring. God, I ask that we would trust you, that we would follow your call to love one another in this way. And Lord, that you would provide all that we lack because we lack so much. We pray knowing that you hear our prayers and that you provide more abundantly than we could ever hope. In Jesus' name, amen.